Take your Bibles, please, and turn to Psalm 69. That's where where we'll be today. We're taking a Sunday off from our series, uh, Turning Points Through the Book of Acts. Today I'm looking at the question about illness. Very, very uh, uh, appropriate right now as we're going through this pandemic. Why is it that things like this happen? Psalm 69 is our jumping off point, but uh, here's the key concept this morning. God is good even in hard times. God is good even in hard times. But when hard times come, times like tragedy, times like illness and suffering, it's not uncommon for people to shake their fists at God and say, why is it that there's so much suffering and evil and sickness in the world? And right now, as we have this pandemic breaking out, people are casting about for answers to to that very question. Some look at COVID-19 and they say this must be God's punishment on our nation for our moral failure. And the fact is that, and when you read the Bible, you see that God does use calamity to get people's attention. All you need to do is read the prophets and you'll see that. And, and we're always meant to ask the question as something like this happens, is, and that is, uh, are there ways that we have strayed as a people that we need to correct? What must we change to be more fully in the will of God? But is that always, and is that all that happens as it comes to uh, sickness and suffering? And the answer to that is no. It's a much more complicated picture than just that. But it raises questions. Is God to blame for natural calamity? Is God to blame for suffering and illness? I'm gonna try to seek to answer those questions today. But before we do that, I want you to see King David's attitude. In the midst of his own calamity and his own uh, uh, suffering, I want you to see his heart. We'll begin with Psalm 69. I'm gonna read the first two verses and then we'll go over to verse 16. David writes this, Save me, O God, for the waters have come up to my neck. I sink in the miry depths. There is no foothold. I have come into the deep waters, and the floods engulf me. And then verse 16, Answer me, O Lord, out of the goodness of your love. In your mercy, great mercy, turn to me. Do not hide your face from your servant. Answer me quickly, for I am in trouble. Come near and rescue me. Redeem me because of my foes. Now, that may seem an odd passage to start with as we talk about suffering and in a theology of suffering. However, I wanted you to see the attitude of King David. King David says, I'm up to my neck in trouble right now. I'm up to my neck in suffering, yet he has the assumption that even in that situation, God is still good. He calls on him. He asks for his love. He asks for his mercy to be evident. But questions remain. The atheist author Christopher Hitchens asks a somewhat snarky question in one of his books, but it gets at uh, the, the issue of the day. He asks, if Jesus could heal a blind person, why didn't he heal blindness? In other words, it's that age-old issue. If God is powerful and good, why do we still have evil in the world? Right now, our attention is on COVID-19. 
But it wasn't too long ago that we were talking about an earthquake or a tsunami or Ebola or the various things that we hear about. And if we're going to be able to answer this question, we need to understand the nature of evil. That's a basic, basic uh, principle that must be grabbed hold, grabbed hold of. And people are trying to do that. I read an uh, article, uh, editorial, May 1st, just a few months ago, in the Wall Street Journal that tried to re wrestle with the nature of evil, and they did so very unsuccessfully. The author writes it this, writes this way. He says, few of us bother with theology anymore. If we speak more of incompetence, because we have abandoned the realm of radical evil which conjures up Lucifer or Satan, our epoch seems to have dispensed with the old distinction between natural evil and moral evil. And I read that, and I, a thought popped into my mind as I read that. I said, if that is true, that is tragic. Because if we're going to understand why these things happen, we have to see the distinction between natural evil and moral evil, moral evil as our own sin, natural evil as the consequence which comes from sin, moral evil or human, human acts of sinfulness, theft and murder and those kinds of things. And we fall into that. All of us do, for we have all sinned and fall short of the glory of God. Why? Because we have a proneness towards sin in our sin nature. And it shows up again and again. It was just a, a month or so ago, maybe a little bit more, when the, the lockdown was very serious, remember, and we weren't really going any place. Churches weren't able to meet and so forth, and everybody was making masks. And one day, my, my wife, she had made a whole bunch of masks, and she went to the post office to mail uh, masks to our daughters. And as she was there kind of having to deal with the boxes and the packaging and all that kind of stuff at, in the post office, she paid with her credit card and placed the credit card on the counter. And when she left, she forgot the credit card on the counter. It wasn't even a, a little bit over an hour, and we started to get notifications about fraudulent charges on the credit card. A shop here, a gas station there, this kind of thing, all, all over town. And obviously it wasn't us doing that shopping, and we canceled the card. But I want you to notice what happened in that scenario. Uh, instead of the person behind her saying, hey, lady, you forgot your card. No, they slipped that card into their pocket and they started shopping around town. This was during the time when CBS News was ending every broadcast with, remember, we're all in this together. thought to myself, well, not so much, right? But it's an example of moral evil, a willful choice to do that which is sinful. Natural evil, on the other hand, means the things that happen in the world, disasters, floods, epidemics, pandemics, these kinds of things. Now, what the Bible teaches is that those things occur in the system of the world in which we live because our sin has affected that system. Natural evil springs from moral evil. Romans 8 puts it this way. For the creation was subjected to frustration, not by its own choice, but by the will of the one who subjected it in hope, that the creation itself will be liberated from its bondage to decay and brought into the glorious freedom of the children of God. We know that the whole creation has been groaning as in pains of childbirth right up until the present time. See, the message of the Bible is this, a rebirth is coming. 
It will not always be this way, but it is this way now because sin has affected the system of the world. And so what should we think when we try to come to a philosophy of suffering and, and how to do, what to do about it, how to think about it? There's basically three ways you can approach it. The one way is the way that we see most in the world around us, and that is an approach based in atheistic naturalism, uh, an atheist that, that leaves God out of the picture completely. Atheism has no solutions for suffering, no comfort in the time of tragedy, no help. Atheism is silent in the time of suffering. When bad things happen, nobody calls up an atheist group to come help them out because there's no comfort to be found in that point of view. Things are the way they are at random. There's no reason, there's no rhyme, just get over it, get on with it. But once you understand that there is a God, and he is governing, watching over us, you still have two options in terms of a philosophy of suffering. The first one, also unsatisfactory, I'll call finitism. It's the idea that God is somehow limited, that God would wish to but really can't do much about suffering or evil. This was something that was very obvious a couple generations ago when certain uh, theological scholars were so taken by the idea of evolution that they thought that evolution gave them kind of the answer for why bad things happen. And they came up with a view of God that says, well, you know, just like the world is evolving, God is evolving. And even though God would like to change things, He really can't change things. We're basically on our own. That, that view is called process theology. It's still out there, but that's a theology that you cannot reconcile with the Word of God. That's not the God you read about in the Bible. Which brings us to the third view, and I'll just call that Christian orthodoxy. And the motive that comes to us in Christian orthodoxy is you can trust God even in hard times. Why? Because God is at work in pain. God can step in and He does sometimes punish us for specific sins. And when He does, the reasons are clear, the results are obvious. We read through the prophets and we see that. However, the roots of the negative results in our world are mostly found in the fact that human beings, our own choice to sin, has tainted this system that we live in. But God has already provided an answer for that, and that answer is the cross of Christ. He has a plan. The answer is being worked out. The plan is being accomplished, and it's being accomplished on a global and historic scale, and you all are a part of it being worked out. But in the meantime, we still live with the effects of sin. And that means that there are times of suffering and sickness until the culmination of all things and we look towards that end. So, stepping back for a moment, why must we endure times of suffering and disease? Well, as I said, reason number one is sin has twisted God's good creation. You can truly say it's our fault, the fault of sinful human beings. But let's back up again for just a little moment. Let's step back and think about the difference between possibility an impossibility. You see, it's not logically possible to have a world in which human beings have free will 
and at the same time have a world in which there is no possibility of evil. Those things are mutually exclusive. Understand, God does not cause evil. He never did cause evil. But he did create a universe which contained the possibility of evil because that possibility is embedded with our ability to choose. In the angel's conversation with the Virgin Mary in Luke 1, the angel says, nothing is impossible with God. Now, some people look at that verse and that kind of theme throughout Scripture and, says, and say, you see, God can't be good. If he's all-powerful, he can't be good if bad things happen. And here's where the reflections of C.S. Lewis will help us. I'm going to read a little section to you here. I need you to tune in on this. But in his book, The Problem of Pain, this is what he says about impossibility and possibility. He says, in ordinary usage, the use of the word impossible generally implies a suppressed clause beginning with the word unless. For instance, it's impossible for me to see the street from where I sit writing at this moment unless I go to the top floor while I'll be high enough to overlook the intervening building. Pause. Now, I'm going to call what Lewis is talking about there as things that are merely impossible. As it is right now, that thing can't be done. But things can change. And if things change, that which seems impossible can be done. So to use his illustration, I can't see the parking lot right now. But if I were to go out into the foyer, go by the window, I could see the parking lot. Circumstances would have changed. And what we know about our God is he's always able to change the circumstances. He is able to work that which is a miracle so that circumstances, you know, are, are, are altered and the impossible is accomplished. That's the merely impossible. But there's a second level that I'll call the intrinsically impossible, and that is when what you're asking is self-contradictory, okay? So God is almighty, but he can't do things that don't make sense. That's intrinsically impossible. He can't make a round uh, he can't make a square circle, okay? Why? Because that's mutually exclusive. It carries the impossibility within itself. So keeping that in mind, let me read on Lewis. He says this. This kind of impossibility is impossible under all conditions in all worlds for all agents, and all agents includes God. His omnipotence and power to do all that is intrinsically possible, but he doesn't have the power to do what is intrinsically impossible. Here that is self-contradictory. Lewis ends, I love this line, you may attribute miracles to him, but not nonsense. See, the intrinsically impossible, and it's intrinsically impossible to give humanity free will where we make free choices with the consequences that come, and at the same time, not to give humanity free will to make free choices with the consequences that come. And free choice always includes consequence. And here's the point of the Bible. God valued our freedom so much that true freedom was given to us. But we chose, we choose, and we will choose poorly. That's the human condition. But God always knew that we would. And he always, from eternity past, had a provision that would enable us to rectify 
rectify that sinful situation and to be redeemed, the, the cross of Jesus Christ. However, for now, the results are something we live with, and those results include disease. Now, you may glibly say, well, you know, why in the world did God give us that kind of freedom, even though he knew we would, we would blow it? God gives us freedom because without the possibility of choice, you lose the possibility of love. And without the possibility of choice, you are not a creature created in the image of God because inherent in the image of God is His ability to choose. Real love involves choice, and it always brings consequence. And as we exercise that choice badly, sin entered the system in which we live, ourselves and the world. But God also gave us freedom so that we could choose to be part of the solution. Not ultimately, we can't save ourselves, but we who know Christ as Savior are called to uh, uh, work with Him, to cooperate with, to serve Him in the redemption of those around us and for the good and the glory of God. Even in simple ways, even in, for those who don't know Christ as Savior, for, let's take our situation right now. It is God who gives these scientists the ability, the insight to work towards this vaccine that hopefully someday will come. And as they do that, they're part of the solution of the very thing that is caused by moral evil. My point is this. God has a plan. And he will take the bad things that happens and, and, and be able to turn them around for our good and his glory, and he's always doing that. But we are called to trust him. I read a, a story about a man who is a, he's a businessman, and he has a private plane. It's a little plane that he flies himself. But he has a lot of appointments from place to place, and so he found it just time saver to uh, fly his plane. And when he goes from city to city for his appointments, he follows the major highways. It's a good way to know where he is, you know, in terms of uh, what town he's going to. And, and he told the story about one day flying his plane, and he flies it low enough so that he can see the highway, and he, so he sees what's going on down, down there. And one day he was flying the plane, and it was over a mountainous section of the highway. And what he was observing was this, that there was a truck that was fairly slow moving up these mountainous highways, and there was a car behind the truck who wanted desperately to pass that truck. Many of you have lived this very situation. And so, so the car is kind of trying to get around this truck, but every time the car went out to get around the truck, that there was a curve in this mountainous road. And so the car was frustrated, couldn't, couldn't uh, pass this truck, and ended up just staying behind this slow-moving truck. Now, here's the point. The pilot in the plane above, looking down, he knew the whole time that there was no oncoming traffic. In other words, that car could have passed that truck at any point in that journey and been totally safe. The pilot saw that, but from ground level, the driver didn't know that. And so he stayed behind the truck, and the pilot thought to himself, you know, this is God's perspective. God sees it all, all the time, the end from the beginning. God knows what's going on and where this is all going. I don't as I live life on ground level, and so I am called to trust Him. And here's my point. It is very logical to trust in an all-knowing, all-powerful God whose very nature is love. That's a logical thing to do. 
because even in the hard times, He is good. There's one more point in this. We need to remember that the story isn't over. For those of us who um, you know, would criticize God for the way He's running the universe and for the fact that bad things are going on, that kind of thing, it's kind of like reading halfway through a novel and throwing the novel down and saying, I can't believe this author hasn't solved all these things yet. You know, why isn't this story coming together? Well, it's not coming together because you're not at the end. We're not at the end of the story. And at the end of the story, we're, we're in the middle of the story now, but at the end of the story, eternity will come. And the final victory over evil and suffering will happen. Paul once again gives a glimpse of that <clears throat> or a depiction of that in Romans 8. He says this, I consider that our present sufferings are not worth comparing with the glory that will be revealed in us. The creation waits in eager expectation for the sons of God to be revealed. I want you to see that it's Christianity alone that gives a full-orbed version of view of suffering and combines that understanding of why things are the way they are with hope. It's Christianity alone that gives us this perspective because what else would you expect from a loving God who cares for us and wants the best for His children? He saw our basic need, our root need, our eternal need, and He sent His Son, Jesus, and suffered on the cross for us. He Himself entered the suffering and took pain on Himself. Why? So that we who cling to Him could have hope, not just for now, but for all eternity. The story's not over. The plan is in progress. Eternity is ahead, and hope enables us to fight on because this is not all that there is. It's not all that will be. And one day, if you know Christ as personal Savior, this will be your experience. It is described to you in Revelation 21. It says this, And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Now the dwelling of God is with men, and He will live with them. He will wipe every tear from their eyes, and there will be no more death or mourning or crying or pain, for the old order of things has passed away. He said to me, It is done. I am the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end. To him who is thirsty, I will give drink without cost from the spring of the water of life. He who overcomes will inherit all of this. I will be his God, and he will be my son. And that's where... The followers of Christ are headed, and it's all because of the cross of Christ for you. Let's pray together. Thank you, Lord Jesus, for your sacrifice for us. Thank you for your goodness in all circumstances. Help us, Lord, to keep hope alive. Help us to continue to be loving and gracious Strengthen our faith and our trust so that even in the midst of difficult times, times of illness, that we can look to you and find that there, there are answers and there, there is love. Thank you, Lord, for that. We rejoice in all that we have in you. We trust you. In your name we pray. Amen. And we're now going to enter into our simple communion time. 
Uh, let me speak to those who are watching at home. It may be that you've prepared some communion elements to follow along in the communion service. Uh, I'll be guiding you in the taking of those elements. But it may be that you're home and you haven't done that or you don't wish to participate in the communion service. Uh, I understand that. Uh, and so if that's your situation, thank you for watching and we'll uh, see you here again next week in our service. But for those who wish to participate, even at home or out in the video venues or here in the sanctuary, Sanctuary, we'll have this uh, simple service as we conclude. You will need to have that communion packet I mentioned a moment ago, so I hope that's nearby. But the team comes first to prepare our hearts with uh, a song as we come to the table of remembrance. Romans 5.8 states, But God demonstrates his own love toward us, and that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. Let's reflect on that.
2 Corinthians 5.20, Paul implores us, be reconciled to God. What it means is we need to change our attitude from one of defiance to one of faith. It means we need to turn our direction from running away from God to running into His arms of love. And when we do, we find mercy, forgiveness, and hope. And He's always ready to give that. For the work of the cross has already been done, and Jesus has declared it finished. And these elements of communion, these elements remind us of the source of our hope and reconciliation. But they also remind us of the ongoing process that we are called to, to constantly renounce that defiance and grow in our dependence on Him. And they're open to all who know Christ as personal Savior. So I invite you now to simply prepare your hearts for partaking in these elements. Spend a moment of silent prayer, opening up your heart, confessing those th things that get in the way of this relationship. And as we're ready, then we'll take the elements together. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you that nothing ever takes you by surprise and you've always had a plan. And even though you knew that we would let you down and sin would be part of our experience, you always had the plan of redemption and hope. You always had a way so that we might find forgiveness and be justified in your sight. And so, Lord, we thank you that we have the opportunity to partake in these elements which simply remind us of the plan and that that plan is worked out for us. Bless us, Lord, as we seek to honor you, remembering you in the way that you've asked us to. In your name we pray, amen. So while you peel back that top layer of cellophane and take the wafer out, hear these words from the Apostle Paul. 
For the Lord Jesus, on the night he was betrayed, took bread. And when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, This is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. Let us eat together. And separating out that lower section of cellophane where we find the cup, we continue. Saying in the same way after supper, he took the cup, saying, This cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this whenever you drink it in remembrance of me. And Paul adds these words. Whenever you drink, eat the bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. Let's make that proclamation together. And when you finish, would you stand with me for a closing prayer? These are the words from Ephesians and an attitude of prayer. But now Christ Jesus, who brought who who you but now in Christ Jesus, you who once were far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ. Thank you, Lord, that you saw us in our need, that you know us, you love us. Thank you for your sacrifice that covers our sin and guilt that we can stand cleansed before you and redeemed. Dismiss us now into this week ahead and help us, we pray. Bring the understanding, the insight, and the, the love and the mercy that you give us from your word to those around us. Help us to represent you well and to work and live and speak your gospel for your glory, we pray. For we ask it all in Jesus' name. Amen. God bless you. Thanks for coming today.